1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Ahead in this hour, the Supreme Court appears ready to limit the powers of the SEC. The justices deal with a question of double jeopardy. Conservative appellate judges deal a severe blow to the Voting Rights Act. And prosecutors are using a rapper's lyrics against him in a racketeering trial.
2: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Mm.
3: Dagger. Dagger. Yeah. I never killed anybody,
4: but I got something to do with that body. I got this piece on my back, carry it like I'm
3: moving the body. I told him to shoot a hundred rounds, like he trying to move it about it. It was like them in the morning, and just school. That's the truancy, body.
1: That's Grammy-winning rapper Young Thug's 2018 song called Anybody. And prosecutors are going to use those lyrics in the racketeering case against him, saying it's a reference to a killing he ordered. Young Thug, whose real name is Jeffrey Lamar Williams, is on trial with five other defendants in Atlanta, Georgia, in a sprawling racketeering case in which the state accuses him of leading a criminal street gang fronted by his record label, a gang that committed a slew of violent crimes, including murder. Lawyers for the influential rapper say he's innocent of any crimes, that he's an artist with a successful record label, and his lyrics are just art. Joining me is Michael Moore, the former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia and a partner at Moore Hall. This sort of sounds like a movie <laughs> script because Georgia is accusing this Grammy-winning rapper of leading a street gang that's fronted by his record label. And mm-hmm. the crimes include killings and shootings and carjackings. Right.
4: And it's easy, remember, to charge people with a crime. It's sometimes harder to prove that. And so the state, they'll have to come forward and put on some evidence that the main defendant was really in control of what was going on by other people on the street. I think that gets harder to do if we just have realistic conversations about what actually happens in the real world in certain neighborhoods and areas of town and you know, that type of thing. And the prosecutors will have to explain how that's not just what I'll call street level crime, but was actually part of this larger umbrella that they've charged as part of this RICO case.
1: Tell us about the RICO indictment of what the prosecution is charging.
4: RICO really deals with racketeer-influenced, corrupt organizations. And if you think about it, maybe in layman's terms, it's really talking about things like organized crime. And so you saw some RICO cases, that is, going after these organizations, the mob, basically, where they would try to take down the mob leader by essentially attributing the bad conduct of his underlings to him. In other words, they didn't have to find the Mafia Don pulling the trigger, they could actually have a murder committed by somebody else, but they could talk about this was a goal and an effort of this criminal enterprise to either obtain money or property, and, and that's how they went after the organization. Recently, you've seen RICO cases used, not only in drug conspiracy-type cases, but also there was one relatively well-known case in Atlanta where a RICO case was used involving public schools and, and the cheating scandal. Some of those people, I think, had their cases. may have got some of them reversed, but some certainly were convicted. And the, probably the most famous one right now that we're hearing about is the Trump campaign. But it's a prosecutor's dream, really, because it allows them to basically taint everybody with the negative brush. And so they can bring in a lot of evidence. They get to attribute all the bad conduct of your co-defendant to you, if you're a defendant. And it's more of a, I guess, a case involving either directions to do wrong or involvement to do wrong or sometimes just knowledge of people who are doing wrong. All that evidence gets to come in. And at the end of the day, the prosecution asks the jury to convict you because you were part of this, this organization. So... It's not an uncontroversial statute. Many people think that it allows prosecutors too much leeway in bringing cases, and but they tend most of the time to be complex and involved and sometimes unruly, as you're saying in this case.
1: What really interests me in this case is that the judge has ruled that prosecutors can use his lyrics as evidence of his involvement in the crime, so they can present 17 sets of lyrics as evidence provided they can link their content to real-world crimes. That's been done before. Is it controversial, though?
4: It is controversial, and I don't know frankly how I feel about it. I think it's probably pushing the envelope a little bit. And while it's not the first time, so it's not really precedent-setting, there are other cases where this has happened. I do think it raises some pretty unique questions about the First Amendment, about, you know, artist's creativity, and then whether or not later that can be used in a case. You can think about cases, you know, woe be it for any country music star to either be charged with drunk driving or get a divorce because that's going to come up. Does that mean now that that's going to be evidence in their case? That they talked about, you know, drinking too many drinks or chasing too many paramours or whatever the case may be or, you know, smoking too much weed or, you know, whatever. Is that now going to be the norm? And I think those are the kind of lines where this type of admission of evidence, of this specific type of evidence, it gets blurry. Frankly, and I, you know, I was thinking as I thought some about the case. If you're defending a case like this, or you're just representing a music artist, are you well advised to suggest to them that, just write a couple of songs with really acceptable lyrics. Things like "I love the police," "I never commit a crime," "I don't do drugs," and say, so, "Well, here's evidence now by good care You know, that's something that I, that ought to go into. I, I assure you that the people who are prosecuting the case would say no, but somehow here this evidence is coming in. It. Limiting instructions too to a jury, and that may be what the judge has in mind when he talks about it. you have to link it up and all this. He may tell them, well, you can only consider this, and it looks like it went to an actual crime. Those are often a little prophylactic, and that's about it.
1: So, do you think that admitting these lyrics will be an appellate issue?
4: I think there's no question. I mean, it's here are we getting our hands a little too tightly around the neck of the First Amendment and the free speech of people, all for the sake of getting some small piece of evidence in, in the hopes that that might be what pushes. The jury over the edge to a conviction, as opposed to looking for that evidence through witness testimony, co defendant testimony, physical evidence, videotapes, whatever it is. And even though the evidence has been used in other cases, appellate courts are known for shifting or revisiting these issues later on.
1: In the opening statements, the defense attorney told, you know, his rags to riches story. And he sort of changed the narrative. He said THUG stands for Truly Humbled Under God. And YSL, the alleged gang, doesn't stand for Young Slime Life. It stands for the luxury clothing brand.
4: Well, you know, and sometimes lawyers have to sort of dance with what brung them, if you will. In uh, this case, the lawyer may have been looking for some way to, to make a distinction. I do think, though, that the Rag the Riches story is the type of thing that plays into what we talked about a minute ago, and that is the lyrics. And is this artist writing about what he saw as his life experience or an experience of his friends or something that he believed might be relatable in his music genre to his audience? It is it's just something there as opposed to some type of cryptic message about crimes that had taken place or that he had been a part of. And so those will be things they have to ferret out. I'm mindful, though, of how a lawyer might, you know, change the narrative. I mean, remember that we've seen in famous cases a narrative change. We've gone from a bloody crime scene photo to scenes of somebody trying to pull on a leather glove and an argument about if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, you know. And so the lawyer may try to change that narrative here in this case to get the jury's attention on you know, this is who he was, this is how he's come up, this is why he writes these lyrics, this is why he has this circle of friends, this is him as a person, but he's now at a place where he's so successful that this idea of sort of street crime at the level that's alleged in the indictment is outside of what he does, and that's why he may be talking about things like, you know, designer clothes as opposed to the gang name and such as that.
1: I can't let you go without talking about the other RICO case that Willis is bringing in the same courthouse. I mean, do you think that Trump's lawyers will be watching this? I mean, the cases are so different.
4: It's different in in the nature of the charges, but it's not necessarily different in, in watching how a prosecution thinks or a prosecution team might think. You know, this isn't a case where we're going to see the DA herself, you know, making an appearance every day in the courtroom, just like we haven't seen in the Trump case. I mean, she's got assistants in there, so different sets of lawyers are handling different cases. But it can give you a sense of how a case is managed or sort of what the rhythm and the flow of their charging decision and their evidence presentation can mean if they're watching. So I'm sure that the lawyers will have their own group doing some type of recon on, on this case. And while they won't be talking about things like murder or drug dealing and all that, they may be looking for arguments that the state may make in response to objections that the defendants team will make about keeping certain evidence out of the RICO case and how the RICO statute doesn't just give you carte blanche to bring anything you want to into evidence. So I do think that they have likely been Studying uh, the past RICO case, maybe looking at closing arguments, opening statements, how the jury was charged, things that came up like that, and they'll probably be wanting to do the same thing here. The cases are different, but they have the same risk, and the state, again, has the same risk there. That is, if they stretch too far, you know, if if they try to cast too wide a net, they risk risk. Um, missing the big fish that they were after to start with. And so we may see that in this case, and and ultimately that may be what happens in the Trump case. But I think likely that case is so far down the road that the lawyers have plenty of time to be watching this, and and that case will be tied up in appellate courts for some time, and we're not even sure of the schedule of that trial.
1: Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Michael. That's Michael Moore of Moore Hall. Coming up, a question of Double Jeopardy. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg.
2: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. They're tough in Louisiana, Libby. You shoot me, they'll give you the gas chamber.
1: No, they won't. It's called double jeopardy. I learned a few things in prison, Nick. I could shoot you in the middle of Mardi
0: Gras and they can't touch me. As an ex-law professor, I can assure you she is right
1: the Fifth Amendment's double jeopardy clause. We all know about it from TV and the movies. So why did Georgia prosecutors want to try Damian McElrath a second time after a jury had found him not guilty of the malice murder of his adoptive mother by reason of insanity? Well, there's a twist. The jury also found McElrath guilty, though mentally ill, of felony murder and aggravated assault and the Georgia Supreme Court ruled that those inconsistent verdicts were illogical and threw them out. But a majority of Supreme Court justices across the ideological spectrum seem to agree that once a person has been acquitted of a charge, the matter is closed. Here's Justice Neil Gorsuch.
2: And we do not ever talk about whether they make sense to us. They may be products of compromise. They may be inconsistent with verdicts on other counts. We don't question them. And this is the first time this issue has arisen here. Shouldn't that tell us something?
1: Joining me is former federal prosecutor George Newhouse of Richards Carrington. George, tell us about these inconsistent verdicts.
2: So the basic facts are a delusional defendant believed that his mother was trying to poison him and as a result, stabbed her to death, called 911. told the dispatcher what he'd done and why he was right to have done it. He went to trial on three counts, by the way, and that's where this comes up. So three separate charges. The first one under Georgia law is called malice of murder, which is equivalent to a first degree murder. Always the most serious charge, the one that typically can carry a capital punishment. And then there were two other counts. A felony murder rule, which means that he killed someone in connection with committing a felony, in this case, an aggravated assault. And so the third charge was aggravated assault. And You might ask, why do prosecutors bring three separate charges when one act occurred a killing? And they do that because sometimes they want to present the jury with the option of convicting on a lesser offense if they think they might have a problem with the principal offense. And that's exactly what happened here. The jury deliberated, and the defense was, he was insane, so he lacked the criminal intent to commit murder. And the jury deliberated and found him not guilty by reason of insanity on the first count, saying he was crazy. But on counts two and three, the felony murder and the aggravated assault, the jury found that he was sane and convicted him. The state of Georgia, unhappy with that, went to the court and said, well we need a new trial because these verdicts are logically inconsistent you can't be crazy on one count the worst count but sane on the other counts and that went all the way to the georgia supreme court which agreed the court said the verdicts on these two different counts are logically repugnant and as a result it vacated the not guilty verdict and told the state that they were free to retry him and that's what went up to the supreme court whether there should be an exception of the double jeopardy clause. And the exception would allow
4: if the verdicts
2: were logically inconsistent, which jury verdicts are, by the way, frequently, (laughs) uh, they'd be allowed to retry.
1: And Justice Gorsuch seemed particularly fervent about respecting the jury's verdict of acquittal.
2: The rule in this country for the last 230 years, as Justice Gorsuch pointed out, is you only get one chance. And if that jury verdict comes back not guilty, there can be no retrial. We don't, the court system, does not second-guess acquittals. So, for example, if the acquittal is based upon what's called jury nullification, they simply ignore the evidence, You know, or the verdict is logically inconsistent between two different counts. The court system is not allowed to second-guess that. What usually happens, probably happened in this case, was the inconsistent verdicts were a product of compromise. Justice Gorsuch addressed that. They may be products of compromise. They may be inconsistent with other verdicts. We, Justice Gorsuch, said the court system does not question those verdicts. And that has been the law in this country for 230 years. Inconsistent verdicts happen all the time. I tried one as a prosecutor, and the judge said, well, we have two verdicts. One is inconsistent with the other, and the case is finished. So double jeopardy applies.
1: Thanks, George. That's George Newhouse of Richards Carrington. The case before the Supreme Court is about a challenge to the power of the Securities and Exchange Commission to bring legal actions in-house, and it's another example of the conservative justices' target on the administrative state. During oral arguments, Chief Justice John Roberts expressed his concerns about the growing power of federal regulators.
2: The
4: extent of uh, impact of government agencies on uh, daily life today is enormously more significant than it was 50 years ago.
1: The Jarcusy case could strip the SEC of a key enforcement tool, and conservative justices like Brett Kavanaugh suggested that people accused of fraud by the agency have a constitutional right to have their cases decided by a jury in federal court instead of by the SEC's in-house administrative law judges.
2: That seems problematic to say the government can Uh, deprive you of your property, your money, substantial sums, in a tribunal that is at least perceived as not being impartial.
1: A change in the law by the court here could have effects far beyond the SEC because roughly two dozen agencies, including the EPA, the FTC, and the CFTC, have similar enforcement schemes, as liberal justice Sonia Sotomayor pointed out to Jarcusi's lawyer, Michael McCulloch.
5: All of those
1: agencies um, will have to will have to go to court, correct?
2: Well, Your, Your Honor... Uh,
1: all of I, I their proceedings we're... are now nullified under your theory. And Liberal Justice Elena Kagan said that a 1977 Supreme Court ruling, Atlas Roofing, established there was no right to a jury trial here, settling the issue in the case. That's settled.
4: Well, it's it, it settled only to the extent no one's brought it up uh, and forced this issue since Atlas Roofing. I in, this, agree. in this context.
1: I, nobody has had the, you know, chutzpah. <laughs> <laughs> to quote my people, to bring it up since Atlas Roofing. My guest is Harold Krent, a professor at the Chicago-Kent College of Law. How this case involves George Jarcusy, a former hedge fund manager and conservative radio host, and the SEC found he had committed securities fraud in 2013 for misleading investors. How high are the stakes here?
6: The consequences are dramatic, and briefly, they are that almost every particular individual or firm before an agency. Many at least would have the right to a jury trial and not have to go before an administrative tribunal, as is currently the case. That'd be one fundamental change. Second would be that all administrative law judges would have to be subject to outlaw removal, which would undermine the independence, ironically, of these administrative determinations. And third, there would be some kind of reinvigoration of the non-delegation doctrine, which would limit Congress's ability to delegate issues for of agencies to resolve. So very consequential case. The stakes couldn't be higher.
1: Now, Jarcusi contends that defendants in SEC cases have a constitutional right to make their case to a federal jury. And the oral arguments focused almost entirely on that one issue, on the Seventh Amendment, which provides that in suits at common law, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved. So tell us about the argument over the Seventh Amendment.
6: The question is how broad the Seventh Amendment should be construed to extend. On the one hand, an individual has a right to a jury trial, but the courts for 150 years, if not more, have said that the jury trial right does not exist if there is a public right involved. And so much of the argument discussed from different perspectives what is a public right? And the Supreme Court held 50 years ago in a case called Atlas Roofing that a public right would include not only issues between individuals and the government directly, such as taxes and claims like Social Security benefits, but also would include anything under a comprehensive congressional scheme that was devised in order to protect the public. And therefore, in light of this unique public nature, there is no right to a jury trial and that therefore the government can recover fines even outside of a jury context. And so this is the precedent that the government relied upon, and it has been cited in lots of cases since involving fines in immigration proceedings, in customs proceedings, and so forth. So the stakes are very high in this case.
1: Justices Elena Kagan and Katanji Brown-Jackson said that the Atlas ruling settled the issue here. So would the court have to overrule that 1977 precedent in order to rule for Jarkisi here? Likely
6: they would do so, at least in substance, if not in form. I mean, Chief Justice Roberts himself said, well, Atlas yeah, was 50 years ago, and we've seen a lot of that's happened in the last 50 years, including the increasing power of administrative agencies so it's time for us to take a good look back at it to see if it makes sense today. And to be fair, some of the more conservative justices, particularly Justice Barrett, was struggling to figure out a limiting principle, how you could make the determination of when the 7th Amendment right would be triggered.
1: How do you think they're going to rule? Is it going to be a 6-3 ruling, whatever it is?
6: Again, it's so difficult to judge from an oral argument how the court finally going to come out, but I would guess that they will try to articulate a fuzzy line, but a line that is more restrictive of Congress's ability, really, to determine what kind of suits can be presented before administrative agencies. I doubt they'll go as far as to say that Congress can't allow such suits to go before, but they'll probably talk about Congress is limited when the suit is either in all respects, similar or echoes or derivative of a common law right. So what the court will want to do is say, use the touchstone of a common law right and say, if you have the right to have a jury trial in a similar case in 1791 in the courts of Westminster, then Congress cannot effectively deprive you of that right by calling it something else, by changing it slightly, and vesting it before an administrative agency. That would be my educated guess.
1: This is part of a Supreme Court term that could have broad implications for federal regulators. The justices heard arguments in October over whether the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's funding system is constitutional. And in January, it will consider whether to overturn the Chevron Doctrine, which is a precedent that gives agencies leeway when they interpret ambiguous congressional commands. Why this focus And do you think federal regulators should be afraid of what's going to happen this term?
6: Well, it's plain that the focus has arisen from a deep distrust of the administrative state. And the court has signaled in a variety of cases that it wants to pare down the size of government. And it thinks Congress has gone too far in empowering administrative agencies with the ability to investigate and to proceed against mostly companies who violate the regulations that these agencies have promulgated in order to enforce a congressional mission. And so these cases, together with the appointments cases and removal cases, is trying to take another look at how broadly administrative agencies have influence over our lives. But that being said, I think that the court is proceeding probably a little more slowly now than it thought it might two years ago. My guess is that they will take some steps to curb the power of administrative agencies, but by ignoring the non-delegation argument, for instance, they have bypassed an opportunity that would really stick a stake in the heart of most administrative agencies directly.
1: The justices are always saying things like, that's up to Congress, that's not up to us. Here you have Congress expanding the power of administrative agencies over time, and the conservative justices seem to be... Trying to give the courts more power at the expense of federal agencies supervised by the president. Are they trying to take more power for themselves over other branches? Absolutely.
6: There's no question in my mind that the court is sort of redlining what Congress can do and can't do in terms of trying to make provisions for running the government. It's holding on to the power to be an umpire about what is appropriate and not appropriate in a variety of contexts. I mean, they've done that most notably by saying that if something is a major question, we are going to ourselves decide what's a major question and then also decide whether we think Congress was clear enough in terms of giving power to the agency. That itself is arrogating to the court the ability to decide how far agencies can operate and how creative they can be in trying to solve the many problems we face today as a country. And so the judges are giving themselves more power by becoming umpires in these various aspects of the interaction between Congress and the administrative
1: state. So we'll see how far they go in the decisions in these three cases. Thanks so much, Hal. That's Professor Harold Krent of the Chicago-Kent College of Law. Coming up next, an appellate court deals a blow to voting rights cases. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.
3: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. Start your journey at steeple.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L dot com.
1: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. One of the most important pieces of civil rights legislation in our history, the Voting Rights Act, was signed into law in August of 1965 by President Lyndon Johnson.
4: Today is a triumph for freedom, as huge as any victory that's ever been won on any battlefield.
1: But the Supreme Court gutted a core part of that landmark law in 2013 and now a ruling by the conservative Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals threatens to deal a death blow to the act. The circuit dismissed a lawsuit brought by black Arkansas voters who argued the state's congressional map illegally discriminates against minority voters. In a 2 to 1 decision, the judges ruled that private individuals and groups like the ACLU and the NAACP cannot sue to enforce the act. That means only the Justice Department can bring those suits. Joining me is elections law expert Richard Brafault, a professor at Columbia Law School. Rich, tell us what happened in 2013 and what's left of the act before we get to what's happened to it recently. So
5: the Voting Rights Act of '65, as it significantly amended in '82, had many provisions, but two of them really stood out. One was what's called Section 5, which had this concept of pre-clearance, and it basically said that for certain problem jurisdictions, jurisdictions which have a serious track record of violating voting rights, as proven by certain tests in the statute, when they change their voting laws that has to be pre-approved, pre-cleared as the language the statute uses, either by the Department of Justice or by a federal court before it comes into effect. And it kind of reverses the presumption. It says for those problem jurisdictions, they have to prove that their new law or their new change in voting practice or procedure does not burden minority voting rights. So the burden is actually on the data of the local government to show that they're not inflicting any harm. In 2013, the Supreme Court struck down the part of the statute that provided the definition of the jurisdictions that were subject to this special treatment. They were called cover jurisdictions. And the court said that Congress basically had failed to update the formula that decides what a covered jurisdiction is. It was last updated in the 1970s. And the court said it simply cannot be right that that's the right formula now in a statute which was most recently updated in 2006. So with that decision in 2013, the Supreme Court eliminated preclearance. Preclearance is technically on the books, but it has nothing to operate on because the provision that it works with, which is the definition of the covered jurisdictions, is invalid. The other major provision of the act is called Section 2. And that's the one that basically is used to challenge voting rules around the country, which are either intentionally discriminatory or have a discriminatory impact. And really, for the parts of the country that were never under Section 5, Section 2 was where the action was. And since 2013, now it's for all of the country, Section 2 is where the action is. Now, in Section 2, the burden is on a plaintiff to show that a state or local law is discriminatory in intent or in effect against protected by the act, which are primarily based on race or language minority status. But nonetheless, Section 2 has been, particularly after the 2013 decision that's known as Shelby County, Section 2 is clearly by far the major provision of the act for enforcing voting rights.
1: So now out of the blue, a ruling by an Eighth Circuit panel of Republican appointees affirmed a ruling of the district court judge, Trump appointee Lee Rudofsky, that only the U.S. Attorney General can bring suits to vindicate voting rights under Section 2. And I do mean out of the blue, because none of the parties to the lawsuit raised this issue. Judge Rudofsky came up with it on his own. What's their basis for this ruling?
5: So their argument is that Section 2, which makes all sorts of voting practices and procedures illegal, doesn't explicitly say that people who are injured by these practices and procedures have a right to bring a lawsuit, what's known as a private right of action. The statute that basically declares that various kinds of voting practices and procedures which are discriminatory are illegal, but it doesn't explicitly, literally say that people who are injured by that can bring a lawsuit. Now. Since the time of the enactment of this statute, especially since it was significantly beefed up by Congress in reaction to a Supreme Court decision in 1982, this statute has been used for private claims—I don't know, hundreds of times—which have been adjudicated by courts, including by the Supreme Court, as recently as earlier this year, the Allen v. Milligan decision. So it has been used many, 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 many times. But according to the Eighth Circuit majority, the Supreme Court has never literally said that there's a private right of action. They've just assumed it. And in that Allen case, Justice Thomas, in his dissent, also raised this as a question about whether or not there really is a private right of action. So I think he, in that case, in some earlier cases, may have planted the seeds of doubt. But as I say, until now, I think there have been hundreds of cases in the district courts, the courts of appeals, which have assumed that there's a private right of action. And at least a number of cases, I'm not sure if it's single digits or double digits, of cases in the Supreme Court which have assumed a private right of action. And this is the first case that has literally said, no, we don't think it's there. And the fact that there have been these many, many, many cases, assuming that it's there, we don't care about those because nobody ever literally worked it through and held that there's a private right of action.
1: And Justice Gorsuch has also referred to whether private plaintiffs could sue under Section 2 as, quote, an open question. Wendy Weiser of the Brennan Center for Justice has called these comments by the two justices bat signals that they're open to considering novel theories to undermine voting rights. And maybe the lower court judge who clerked for Justice Thomas saw the bat signal. Now, are these judges claiming that they're following precedent because this wasn't specifically addressed, even though, you know, there's case after case after case after case where private groups sue?
5: Right. I think I would rephrase that to say they claim that they're following the text of the statute, the text of the statute and nothing more, and that they're not bound by any inconsistent precedent because there's no precedent that literally says the statute does create a private right of action. So I think that's how they would put it. This is consistent with kind of the dominant approach to statutory interpretation in the current Supreme Court and federal courts, which is what's called textualism. We're just going to read the statute and see what's there. And they don't see this literal language there, as opposed to seeing that the structure of the statute, the purpose of the statute was designed to enable people to protect their voting rights. In their view, there is not a specific little bit of text that says it.
1: It seems like a very narrow, technical argument that ignores everything except the words that are not there.
5: It's a very technical argument, but it is an argument that I'd say resonates with some of the arguments that have really persuaded the Supreme Court in other areas, not voting rights. This idea of the private right of act, I mean, this has come up in other settings where Congress passes a law that prohibits certain activity or provides for certain benefits but doesn't literally give people the right to sue if those are denied. Maybe the assumption is that the attorney general will sue or a federal agency will sue. And for a long time, the Supreme Court was willing to imply private rights of actions as necessary to vindicate the rights provide the benefits that Congress authorized. In more recent years, the Supreme Court has cut back on that and has been less inclined to find a private right of action in a statute that doesn't literally say that.
1: For decades, it's been private parties that have mainly sued to enforce the Voting Rights Act. If this decision is affirmed, it'll be up to the Justice Department to bring those suits. Does it have enough people and resources to do so? It's not clear the
5: Justice Department would have enough staff to bring it. And then there might be Justice Departments that are not interested, that their philosophy is not inclined to bring these cases. can imagine that happening, too. So, yeah, this is a real body blow to any effectiveness of the Voting Rights Act. If people can't sue, if they believe that there's a violation, the opportunities to enforce these rights will be drastically diminished.
1: Certainly, there'll be an appeal of this. Thanks so much, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brafalt of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show.